As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success. As sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, so, so thanks for your great questions. Uh, you know, it's uh, usually I get a lot of, uh, you know, shallow questions that I've answered a million times already, but yours yeah. were really... Uh, really well done. I looked at your list with questions and I thought that's going to be a tough one. <laughs> All right. I'm here with the scintillating Sabine, Sabine Hassenfelder, and we're going to talk about physics, a bit of consciousness, a bit of something called emergence. So Sabine, why don't you tell us, tell the audience a bit about yourself as well as what you're working towards. Uh, I'm a theoretical physicist and I presently work at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies uh, in Germany. And, you know, my day-to-day -day research is mostly um, dark matter, superfluid dark matter in particular. Uh, but I also do um, some stuff in the foundations of quantum mechanics. And, you know, I'm generally broadly interested in the foundations of physics. Superfluid dark matter. Dark matter is, it's dark and it's not clear what it is. And you're qualifying it by saying superfluid dark matter. Why is that? Well, um, so this is a particular type of dark matter that um, was proposed by um, a group around Justin Curry um, about five years ago. And the curious thing about it is that this kind of superfluid um, appears like modified gravity. 
and I don't know if you've been following this whole debate, but there's there's this big fight in in astrophysics about whether it's dark matter, so it's stuff made of particles, or whether we have gotten something wrong with gravity and we need to modify Einstein's theory of general relativity. And um, so that there are <laughs> benefits to either side, I would say, and, and, and people can't decide what's the right thing. And um, the amazing thing about this type of superfluid dark matter is that it combines the benefits of both <laughs> without the disadvantages of either. So when I, when I first read about this, I was like, that's the thing to do. <laughs> and um, I feel super, super lucky that I actually got a research grant that allows me to further study um, this type of dark matter. How does it combine the benefits of modifying the field equations of Einstein? Well, it doesn't exactly modify the field equations, but what this uh, superfluid dark matter does is um, that there is an additional force in the fluid, which is mediated by the phonons um, after condensation. And um, it, this force appears like it sits on top of gravity. So it um, makes gravity stronger, which is exactly um, wh what we observe. And now the interesting thing about it is that um, since it's generated by this condensation process, um, it's a very regular force that has a lot more patterns to it uh, than you would get by normal dark matter that you can distribute however which way you like. So this normal dark matter has a big problem reproducing certain patterns that we observe, like um, the baryonic tully fischer relation, uh, just to mention an example. Um, and uh, superfluid dark matter uh, can reproduce these patterns quite easily. So is that what you're working toward primarily right now? is just fleshing that theory out, making it match with predictions unless it already does. I mean, making it match with the current data. Yeah, basically. So I'm, you know, on the, on the one side, there's this question, like, how do you connect this with the data? But there's also on the theoretical side, they are just things that are, have not been very well explored. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a theoretical physicist. <laughs> I work more on uh, understanding the theory part and, um, you know, but I, I have a student and a collaborator um, who are more on the observational side. So, of course, we're, we're hoping to connect the two. <laughs> and what's your YouTube channel? What's the goal? What's the goal? Yeah, Just for, for everyone watching question. this, you should check out, I'll <laughs> include a link to your YouTube channel in the description. Check out her channel because if you're someone who's interested in physics and if you're an undergrad in physics, physics and if, even if you're a graduate in physics, you'll have plenty to learn from her channel. She has music videos as well, as far as I know. Sabine, you've moved your music videos to another channel, though some of the old ones remain. And I'm, yeah, so what the heck is, why are you doing the YouTube channel? Maybe it's self-explanatory, but I wanna hear it from you. And then second, what's the deal with the music videos? Well, so um, I've been in science communication like for almost 15 years now, and I used to mostly do writing. Um, as you probably know, I've written this blog called Back Reaction uh, for quite a long time. And I've just found in the long run that uh, writing doesn't appeal to a pretty big group of people. And there's generally an issue with um, blogging which is that the audience is pretty much self-selecting. So after you've written on a particular topic for some time, which in my case is mostly particle physics, you're, you're pretty much stuck with a certain group of people. So you live in this bubble. 
And then if you get interested in something else, like it's been the case with we, um, you, you totally talk past your audience. So no one gives a shit, basically. Um, I see. And um, in on So you YouTube, developed too narrow of an audience over time with blogs. Yeah, right. And, and now the thing is that um, search engine um, optimization has been going um, in a way that doesn't really help this. So people don't just go online and search for something on a blog that just doesn't exist. And now the interesting thing about YouTube is that um, they will try to find an audience for your content. That's what the search algorithm does. And now, you know, there's a long conversation to be uh, have had about how well this actually works. But in principle, the idea is good. You know, they take your content and they, they try to find people who may be interested in it. And I think this has really helped me um, to get the stuff that I've more recently been interested in, which leans more towards philosophy, foundations of uh, quantum mechanics, and uh, more generally the um, sometimes not very well-working connection between science and science policy. Um, so, so this is all stuff um, that I found gets across much better on YouTube. And I mean, then there are obvious things like that. It's easier to um, explain some things if you can use graphics. Right, right, right. And yeah, when you say the, that you're interested in the philosophy of the foundations of quantum mechanics, are you referring to the different interpretations of quantum mechanics? Well, um, I'm, you know, I said I'm a theorist, but uh, I'm actually, more strictly speaking, I'm a phenomenologist. Uh, it's just that I, I try to avoid the word because a lot of people don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah, so, actually, a, a quick aside, phenomenology for the majority of our audience, they might be familiar with the philosophy that comes from Husserl. Exactly. And phenomenology, particle phenomenology sounds like, oh, are you talking about the umwelt of a quark? I don't know if you are aware of the philosophical phenomenology, but if you, don't, if you are, can you delineate it between the particle phenomenology? Yes, yeah, so, so the phenomenology um, in particle physics has nothing to do with the philosophical area of phenomenology, but it's, um, it basically sits in the middle between theory and experiment. So you're, you're trying to develop um, a model that you can connect to what is actually measurable. So the, the oh. theoretical side in particular in, in particle physics tends to be pretty much only math, right? That, 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 that's what you do. Uh, and then on the experimental side, you measure. And the phenomenology uh, is that group of people where we are making a connection between the two. So it would be as if Newton came up with a theory of gravity and then someone said, well, here's how we can test the theory of gravity. That's the phenomenologist. And then the experimentalists go out and do the actual testing. Is that the divide? Um, yeah, roughly speaking, except that uh, normally it's the case that you have a theory which is much, much more complicated than Newtonian gravity. So you have to coax something out of it that you can actually go and measure. I see, I see. And I'm sure you've heard of some of these new theories of everything that have been developed recently, two major ones. And it, for example, Weinstein's and Wolfram's. And I'm, I want to know if you're familiar with it. And if you see as a phenomenologist, any clear way of getting a, a prediction from them? Uh, no, I don't see such a way. I'm sure that they both have been thinking about it, uh, but it's a, you know, this is a really complicated process. Um, to and I'm not, I'm not even, 
sorry, I'm not even one to say that a prediction is necessary in the short term when you're exploring. I know that I, in your book, Lost in Math, it's, it's like, hey, there's been 20 years with string theory, maybe more. And it's, well, it seems like, like, like that, that, right, right, right. And well, these two new theories don't have that long of a history. So it's not such a detriment, at least in my estimation, that they don't have prediction, predictions associated with it. Even Feynman said that, Feynman had this great talk. I don't know if you saw it, but he was saying, don't prematurely throw out a new physics theory just because it doesn't comport with the data and doesn't make experiments. And he gave a great analogy. Imagine the Mayans 500, 600 years ago, and they had wonderful predictions. It was based on a, a wrong model, but it all fit with the data of how the sun, of when the sun is going to come out. And then someone says, hey, I think that the sun actually revolves, that the earth revolves around the sun. And, and then they say, well, can you predict when the moon is going to have an eclipse? And that person, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't gotten it that far. And they're like, oh, forget your theory then. Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, it, it can take a long time to understand a theory on a depth so that you can reliably make a prediction. So, and and that's, certainly, that's certainly a problem that we see in the foundations with a lot of people who are working alone or in very small groups. Uh, it, it can take like a really long time to get anywhere. And uh, as long as they don't have, as long as they have nothing to show for, everyone else is like, yeah, no, I don't want to even think about it, <laughs> right? Um, so it's kind of, it's a process where the rich get richer and, and the poor never get anywhere. Have you read Lee Smolin's book on the trouble with physics? Yes, I read that. It seems like there's plenty of parallels between lost in math and, and the trouble with physics. Do you see any disagreements with your point of view and Lee Smolin's in the theory of, sorry, in the trouble with physics? Well, there are some parallels, of course, in that I think we're both concerned about uh, where the foundations of physics are headed uh, and that there are there's too much emphasis on um, some few research directions. Um, my book is more broadly about the foundations of physics, um, while Lee's book is more specifically about string theory. What's the difference, you ask? I think I'm far less critical of string theory um, than Lee is, um, but I'm somewhat more critical of low quantum gravity <laughs> than, than he is. Right. So, right. you know, um, there, there are differences. <laughs> So how do you define a theory of everything? Is it simply unifying gravity with the other three forces or, or is there something more? Well, you want to unify it so that, that it's consistent. You know, if you just take the standard model and you lump gravity on top of it, that's kind of a theory which describes both particle physics as we use it today and general relativity, but it's internally inconsistent. So what people mean with a theory of everything um, is a theory that combines all these four forces, but is math mathematically consistent. And it is widely believed that um, this will require quantizing gravity. So quantum gravity is kind of part um, of the picture. And should a theory of everything have, as one of its ingredients, an explanation for dark matter or dark energy, or is that unnecessary? It's just purely about grand unified theory, unifying these. Well, 
you definitely need to do something about dark matter um, because you need some resolution to that. Um, I mean, look, dark matter makes up like 85% of the matter in the universe. Um, so if your theory of everything does not describe most of what's in the universe, that's a pretty poor theory of everything, I'd say. Mm -hmm. It's a theory so, of a few, of a minority. <laughs> yeah, basically. So when it comes to dark energy, um, there really isn't anything to explain. You know, you, you can just fit all the observations that we have uh, quite well by just saying, well, it's a cosmological constant and that's just a constant of nature. And here we have measured it and, and that's the value. So there's, um, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So in the theory of everything, in your eyes, the, there are some constants that simply need to be measured. They can be taken for granted. They don't need to be explained by some other fundamental process. They they don't need to be explained, no. But um, you know, it would certainly be nice uh, if we were able to reduce the number of um, constants that that we have right now. So this is certainly something that a lot of people hope for. Uh, but strictly speaking, it's not necessary, no. Do you think it's in principle possible to re to actually reduce all the physical constants to something else that's emergent, to so just one? Um, well, it, it kind of depends on how you would define that because, um, I mean, so I, it depends on what you mean by constants. The thing is that we have in our physical theories, uh, we don't just have numbers, like numbers uh, without units, but we also have dimensionful constants. And you need these to come from somewhere. Like, I mean, I'm talking about things like uh, the speed of light, Planck's constant, um, you know, Boltzmann's constant, uh, that kind of stuff. And, and I don't really see how um, you can get around actually measuring them. Like how can we possibly derive them? Y yes, um, which is also something that I think most people don't have in mind when they're talking about the theory of everything. You know, this, I mean, <laughs> theoretical physicists like to just set all these constants equal to one. <laughs> right, 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 that's true. <laughs> so just to ease the calculation. Um, so these are not the constants that uh, they normally talk about um, when they say we, we want to derive this, but uh, usually what they talk about are constants that do not have any units. So this may be, for example, the ratio between the masses of, uh, I don't know, the Higgs boson and the electron or something like this. So, so this would be a typical example for a number that uh, you would hope you can actually derive from your theory of everything. And then that theory may well maybe only require one constant. Uh, I don't see why this would be impossible, um, but um, no one has managed to actually do that. Is there some current theory of everything that you feel like is on the right track? Is there one that in your mind is the best candidate? Well, I mean, there, there are, so um, so we didn't settle before I answered the question. Uh, if by theory of everything, um, you want to include a grand unification. So the grand unification is uh, a certain kind of symmetry for the, the other three known forces besides gravity, uh, the forces in the standard model, like there's electromagnetism and the strong and the weak nuclear force. So um, uh, what, physicists usually call a grand unified theory is one that combines these three forces. 
And you could say, well, they are ready in the standard model. So what's wrong with that? And the answer is, well, nothing really. But, um, you know, it would be nicer if we could combine them to only one force, which in a certain limit gives rise to these uh, three forces. And so normally when people talk about the theory of everything, they um, include grand unification in that. So the theory of everything is this combination of quantum gravity with um, um, the gut, the grand unified uh, theory. And um, so th there are very few theories um, that do that. Um, for example, uh, we were talking about uh, loop quantum gravity. Uh, loop quantum gravity doesn't really say anything about the particle sector. So it does not, it does not have um, a grand unification. So I think, and this is always a matter of definition, of course, but I think um, a lot of physicists would not call it a theory of everything. They would just say it's a theory of quantum gravity. Um, and so string theory uh, is a theory of everything um, that, um, because both gravity and all these forces come out of the same thing. So it's all strings, basically. So that, that's the idea. Um, and then um, there are some other um, approaches where um, people say that's what they do, but it's, you know, it, it's difficult, as I said, because um, these tend to be pursued by very few people. So th they never seem to really be getting anywhere. And I have some of these examples in my book, like Garrett Lisi, for example, with his uh, E8 um, theory. In principle, that's something that could be a theory of everything, but it... It, it, you know, he's pretty much working alone. Uh, and, and so the, it's, it's a very long, tedious process. And then, you know, there are things like causal fermion models, and you may, may put on this list uh, Eric Weinstein and, um, um, you know, may, maybe Wolfram. Steve Wolfram, um, things like that. Um, though Wolfram actually, from what my understanding is, he doesn't say anything about the unification of, of the interaction. Um, on the other hand, he claims he has to say something about the foundations of quantum mechanics. So you know, you, you get into the details uh, very, very quickly. Um, there, there's also um, asymptotically safe gravity, which a lot of people um, seem to be missing. And I would say that's a proper theory of everything um, because you can um, very well combine that with uh, grand unification. And people have, have studied that kind of thing. And it basically removes the discrepancy between the standard model and the classical theory um, of gravity. So, um, you know, I, I don't have very strong opinions about which one of those is the best. As I said, I'm, I'm a phenomenologist. You know, for, for me, that's just, uh, th there are different approaches. And the question is, how, to, how can you test them? So, so that, that's the question that I'm most interested in. I see, I see. Do you mind outlining for our audience your views on strong emergence? You had a great paper, and from my understanding of it, it was first defining what strong emergence is and then refuting it. But then at the end, you save it. And I, I could be incorrect in my reading of it, but yeah, kind of. do you mind, um, do you okay, mind outlining? So Yes, me, so I, I think that the, the definition of strong emergence that uh, I, I'm using there, so, so there's strong and weak emergence, and I'm just using the, the common definition. Um, so if um, you have a system um, which is made of small entities, so it's uh, composed of uh, some smaller stuff, roughly speaking, um, then you can observe some behavior on macroscopic scales. 
um, which you would say is emergent uh, from the behavior of the underlying macroscopic uh, things. Uh, and um, this is a weak emergence if you can actually derive um, from the interactions and the properties of these microscopic constituents what is happening happening on the macroscopic level. So, uh, you know, a typical example would be that um, you can derive, say, the properties of molecules uh, if you know, if you have a theory of atoms. Because the, the properties of the molecules actually follow from uh, what the atoms do and, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, electron orbitals and all that kind of stuff. And what you're describing um, is, so far, it sounds synonymous with reductionism. Um, well, it's kind of, well, reductionism goes the other way around, right? So, so weak right, emergence right, right. is kind of, so reductionism, you dig into the smaller scales, uh, weak emergence, you derive the macroscopic scales I from see, the underlying. I see. Okay. And, and so weak emergence is compatible with this reductionist picture. And a strong emergence says um, that, uh, no, you can have entirely new phenomena on larger scales that you cannot derive from the properties of the constituents of the system. So there's something really new coming into, into play there. And this um, reductionism um, hierarchy basically breaks down somewhere. And now, um, as a particle physicist who um, ha has dealt with reductionism all the time, of course, it's a question that I'm very interested in, like, uh, can you actually make strong emergence work? Because um, if you know that stuff is made of particles and we have the laws for these particles, then in principle, everything derives from that. So that brings up the question, like, is there some place where this derivation can go wrong? And um, that's actually, that's really, really hard to make sense of theoretically. And people have tried for some time. Um, there, there is a very interesting paper by um, Michael Nielsen and someone else, I, I've forgotten the name of the co-author, which is called um, More Really Is Different. You know, that's uh, an echo of uh, Anderson's paper, uh, More Is Different. Um, and so they try to show um, that there are certain systems, um, so, so they use a very simplified system with, with uh, it's kind of like a, um, a board with spins, um, where you can define certain quantities. In the example that they use is the overall magnetization, um, but you cannot derive them from the properties of the underlying system. So this, this would be an example where you could really speak of strong emergence. But, you know, the fine print uh, on this example, which they use is um, that it only becomes impossible to actually calculate this if you have a system that is really infinitely large. So it's this infinity um, that brings up this impossibility. And of course, nothing in nature is really ever infinite. Um, so it's not a particularly good example. And there are some other examples that, that people have played uh, with. And so um, with my background in particle physics, I was trying to look more directly at the theories that we're actually using in particle physics. Uh, so in the standard model, just to be concrete, um, that's uh, a quantum field theory. And uh, in quantum field theory, we have um, a well-defined process of deriving a theory on larger scales from the theory on shorter scales. Uh, that's called effective field theory, and it's just a mathematical thing. 
um, it's fairly new in a sense that, I mean, it's been around for half a century, but it, it has really only entered, uh, I would say, you know, the, the consciousness of the community in the, in the past 20 years uh, or something like this. It's just technically there have been some things that were not very well understood in the early days. But uh, today is kind of something that everyone uh, pretty much uses. So you have these equations that you can just use to derive um, in principle, um, what happens on the macroscopic scales from the underlying um, physics. Uh, now, in many cases, of course, you can't actually solve the equations, uh, but, they are, but they are there. So if you think that strong emergence is a real thing, these equations have to break down at some point. You know, something has to go wrong. And um, the only way that um, you can actually have really new laws on um, large scales uh, is if something goes wrong in this derivation. And so in, in this paper, I was making this argument, you know, first I was explaining um, why um, we don't actually have something like strong emergence, why all these examples that people have come up with are not realistic because they all draw on um, something being infinitely large in one way or the other. And then to say, but uh, look, if you, if you look at effective field theory, there is a way in which this derivation can go wrong. And uh, loosely speaking, it's because um, there are certain functions that connect the theory on short distances with the theory on long distances that can run into a singular point. And let me be clear that just because the point is singular does not mean that it's actually infinitely large but it, it can be a point where um, the function is actually zero and all the derivatives are also zero. The thing is that if you're trying to predict how this function is going to continue from the short distances to the long distances, you can't. So, so and, and this is exactly what you would need for strong emergence to be a real thing, uh, because in that case, you would not be able to derive anything past that point. And I think that's a theoretical possibility, and that's what I, uh, what I wrote this paper about, which is called A Case for Strong Emergence. Um, and this was one of the FQXI essay contests, uh, by the way, if, if someone wants to look that up. Um, um, but um, I, I don't know any physical system that would actually have this property. So it's, theoretically, I think it's possible, uh, but I, I, I don't have any reason to think that it is actually realized in nature. Have you heard of Lee Smolin's principle of precedence? Uh, probably. Is that the thing it, that kind of sounds like Leibniz's principle of, what's it called, something with reason? <laughs> I believe it's that somewhere in the universe, let's say electrons have conglomerated to form some property by chance. Well, then other, in other parts of the universe, the electrons know about this. Rupert Sheldrake, if you were to be more mystical, he would call this morphic resonance, morphic resonance. I'm actually speaking with him in a few hours. I'm going to probe him on this. But if this is true, this to me sounds like a case for strong emergence as well. Am I incorrect? So first, I confuse these uh, principles. You know, uh, Lee likes to introduce definitions and principles, and they're, they're easy to uh, mix up. And uh, I think you're talking about uh, what he calls like the ensemble interpretation. Of okay, I could be wrong with my terminology. Like um, so he wrote a book about this recently. Is this uh, what you're referring to? Yeah. 
Um, so I never Recently thought about whether this would years. be whether this would be a case of a strong emergence. Um, so I, I sorry, I just okay. That's that's fine. That's that's fine. And what does this what does strong emergence have to say about free will? Well, um, so as long as you only have weak emergence, um, free will does not exist uh, for the simple reason that um, we know that the underlying laws in particle physics, they are all deterministic. You know, you, you give me an initial state of the universe at some time, I apply my equations to it, and I can calculate the state of the universe at any later time. It's, it's kind of the same thing with, as with Laplace's daemon. The one difference is that we now have quantum mechanics. So in addition to this deterministic time evolution, there's an element of randomness sprinkled over this, which comes from the measurement in quantum mechanics. So you have a combination of this deterministic time evolution, and then every once in a while, there's something which is unpredictable. Uh, and uh, neither of which uh, is uh, anything like what we normally kind of intuitively uh, refer to as free will. And now I know, of course, that there are a lot of philosophers who have, you know, bent over backwards to try and find uh, a definition for free will that would be compatible with that. Um, you know, this is this whole idea of compatibilism. And I don't really like to argue about, you know, the use of words, uh, but I you know, I would think that this notion of free will that the philosophers are discussing is not a notion of free will that, uh, you know, someone on the street uh, would remotely understand, you know. You're referring to the philosophers who say that free will can be saved under compatibilism, but their definition of free will doesn't comport with people's intuitive definition of free will. And yeah, the intuitive definition of free will is called libertarianism, libertarian free will. But it doesn't matter. So, yeah, I'm not. With, I, I don't, so, I don't, in your opinion, do you know, believe that, that we have lots this? Of isms, but so I, I think, like intuitively, the idea that people have is that there are like there, there are different futures, and you're using this thing you call it free will, which is basically you, and you pick one of these futures. <laughs> and now, what I just said about the underlying fundamental laws is that it's a combination of determinism and randomness. It doesn't leave place for anything like that. Um, and now the thing is that um, if you um, have this breakdown of the connection between the underlying law and um, the, the law on larger scales, like human beings, you and I, <laughs> stuff like that, or maybe already at, at the level of viruses or God knows what, um, then in principle, you can have entirely different laws. And of course, that would bring up the question, well, what are these laws? But well, nobody knows. But at least in principle, um, you know, if you have strong emergence, there's room for that. Do you believe in free will, personally? No. Do you believe in God? No. Okay. Let's move Econ on. <laughs> why, why not agnostic? So that sounds like atheist. Why yeah, not I was about to say that. It kind of depends on whether you're asking me uh, in, in my profession as a scientist. Uh, I would I say see, I I'm see. agnostic. I don't care one way or the other. If you ask me personally, you know, the way that I arrange my life, the way that I think about things, I just don't believe it. There's one way of getting around Bell's inequality, and it's called super determinism. And I'm, I'm curious if you've heard of it, and if you don't mind explaining it to our audience and then giving what your thoughts are on it. 
Yes, I've heard of it. Um, as I said in the very beginning, I'm partly working in the foundations of quantum mechanics, and, and that's what I'm working on. <laughs> um, so, um, as you correctly say, um, superdeterminism is one of the ways to um, get around the conclusions of Bell's theorem, which uh, could be summarized as if you have um, a local and deterministic theory like roughly speaking you know very roughly like the way that we are used to from newtonian mechanics you know it's, um, there's no randomness in that it's all uh, deterministic there's no spooky action at the distance uh, that kind of stuff um, in which the um, outcomes of quantum mechanics are actually determined um, but you cannot predict them just predict them just because you're missing information um, so in this case, the uh, quantum mechanics would be probabilistic for the exact same reason that you normally have probabilistic predictions if you're throwing dice or something like this. You just don't, you're, you're missing information. And so Bell's theorem tells you um, you can't do that um, because any theory that has these properties um, will be in conflict with um, certain experiments that have been done. So there's this thing that's called um, Bell's inequality and all theories of the type that I was just talking about um, tell you uh, have to obey this inequality, but experimentally you know that it can be violated. So this, this just rules out um, this type of um, theory. And a lot of people take this uh, to mean that um, you know, quantum mechanics is uh, non-local and it's a non-realist uh, theory and so on. Now, um, there is one assumption of Inbell's theorem, which is called um, statistical independence. Um, and this is really, really essential to arrive at this conclusion. So if you throw out this assumption of statistical independence, you can very well have a theory that is deterministic and local and still violates um, uh, Bell's inequalities and is therefore compatible with all observations. And personally, I think that this is much more reasonable to, than to buy into all this, you know, philosophically uh, mind-numbing stuff about having a non-realist interpretation that is somehow, you know, always drawing on macroscopic concepts like detector measurements or agents and their knowledge uh, and that kind of stuff, and yet still somehow compatible with reductionism. Um, the only thing that this requires is that you give up on this rather mathematical uh, um, assumption of statistical independence. Now, you, you may ask, well, what does it mean to give up on statistical independence? So just technically, it means that the outcome of the measurement depends on the setting of the detector. And um, if you want to interpret this more broadly, it basically means that there are um, no places in the universe that are uh, entirely um, disconnected from each other. It's basically everything is connected with everything else in, in very, very subtle ways so that you don't normally notice it like uh, in, in, you know, everyday life. Uh, we don't notice quantum effects and so we also don't notice these subtle correlations. But if you do a Bell-type uh, test or some other quantum experiment, uh, then um, you, bec you become sensitive to that. How's this congruent with special relativity? 
that is that you can't break the speed of light. How is it that we can be connected to what is outside the, the cone? Well, you, you can have in special relativity, you can very well have um, correlations between, um, you know, distant points. Um, they, they will be within some light cone of something. Um, it just, you know, just because they're in, in, in distant places does not mean they were created at a distance. You know, they can right, have right, right. been uh, created locally. Right, right. Do you have any thoughts on the emergence of possible emergence of consciousness or whether or not consciousness is fundamental? Well, um, I don't think there's that consciousness is all that mysterious. Um, so, you know, I'm a particle physicist, I'm a reductionist. Of course, I think that uh, consciousness is weakly emergent, as uh, I guess most people uh, in my discipline. Um, you know, it's, it's, it comes from um, the way that complex systems uh, process information, uh, I would say, and at some level, um, it becomes beneficial for the system in terms of natural selection to have a self-monitoring process. Um, so that's a peculiar thing about consciousness is that most of the time we're actually not really aware of a lot of stuff that's going on. <laughs> so that that's all the stuff that we put into the subconsciousness, um, which basically frees up, I guess, some processing power uh, on the higher levels. And um, I, I don't think that consciousness is specific to um you know biological forms of life um but that sooner or later there will be some computers that will reach some levels of consciousness so that is the sun even has a level of consciousness and the planets do well you know there's there's some it depends on exactly how you define it uh, right so um if you define consciousness um, by information processing uh, capacity uh, together with some uh, level of self-awareness, um, then uh, you may find that pretty much any system has a very, very small level of uh, consciousness at some point, uh, but it's rather meaningless. You know, it's, I guess that you would have to pretty arbitrarily at some point just say, okay, we call it consciousness if it's larger than, I don't know, something. Right. Um, now, how do we test that? I, I can see that we can come up with a measurement for consciousness, but it's not as if we can. It sounds like we're simply defining consciousness as being a certain level of self-monitoring information processing, but it's not. Well, you know, on this verbal level, of course, you can't test it. You actually need to write down a particular model that, you know, quantifies uh, just what it takes um what's what exactly needs to be happening in the brain um and and so on and so forth and uh, then i think you can very well go and measure it okay well what i'm saying is that if you measure it let's imagine there's someone who has a low level of what we would predict to be consciousness so let's just give it a number they have consciousness we would predict that they have a, we can we can figure out their brain state almost exactly and we can Imagine that from our data, from our theory, that they should have consciousness at level 10. But they say, and somehow we have to get, we have to have a way of them saying this. They're like, no, 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 I have consciousness at level 20. <laughs> or someone who we predict at level 10 said, no, no, I'm, I'm actually consciousness level five. 
Well, hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. How, how does this... It just, uh, it well, to me I, I just sounds like a definition. Yes, there's probably something fishy about your definition, is what I would say. Look, of course, you want you want a definition that actually agrees, you know, to, to quite some extent with um, what we normally mean by consciousness, right? I mean, we have we have an idea of consciousness, like uh, you're conscious, I I am conscious, uh, you know, other people are conscious. Um, my computer is not conscious, at least not on a noticeable level. You know, you could say that maybe the, the, the task manager or something is, a, is some level of self-awareness, but it's so tiny that, um, you know, I, I, I can't have a meaningful conversation with my computer, let me put it like this. And so um, if we manage to come up with uh, some definition of consciousness, uh, we will want it to um, agree with um, our, our intuition, basically. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. For our audience, do you mind 
explaining, I know that Wolfram's theory is not, is not something you've studied immensely, but Wolfram does say that the universe is inherently computational. What does that mean? Well, I think you, you should ask Wolfram about this, not me. Okay. Okay. So your you would say that the mind body, you know, in, in philosophy, there's something called the mind body problem. The mind body problem is solved. It's just body. And then after <laughs> no, I, I a certain didn't, amount. I didn't, say, I didn't say it's solved. I said it's solvable. It's, there seem to be a lot of people who have this kind of this mystic attitude. Like there's, there's something so special about consciousness we'll never be able to figure out how it works with science and i'm like you know let's talk about this again in 100 years and, I, and i'll tell you we'll have figured it out i see i see okay let's get to your music what does oh what does music do for you are you do you have this creative urge this itch inside you that you have to just get it out there or or you just do it for fun or or what there's not many physicists that i know that that post but music it, videos both i would say um you know I, I definitely have some need for a creative outlet for a long time i used to paint actually i used to paint and then um you know i had kids and uh, you know oil colors and small children don't mix well <laughs> uh so i had to find something else and that's when i started writing songs and you know the the I, i'll admit like the first five years probably the output was pretty terrible but <laughs> You know, I've, I've learned something since, since and I really enjoy it. You know, I, I sometimes feel like if I'm thinking too much about physics, I get a headache, like literally. <laughs> I, I find it really stressful. And the good thing about um, creative enterprise is that it, it clears out your mind. You know, you, you get something else in there. And um, so I do music. Uh, I've uh, tried to teach myself how to sing something that YouTube is, is really good for, by the way. You know, right. Did learning, you also... learning something new. Did you teach yourself how to edit or did someone else edit those music videos? And do you use After Effects or what? Or the, so, so I use uh, Premiere Pro. Um, um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty much learning by doing. I guess I've just made every possible mistake that you can make. And at some point it starts looking kind of okay-ish, <laughs> you know. Uh, in the sense that if you watch it on your phone, um, you won't be able to see uh, most of the glitches. So that's kind of, I mean, I, sometimes I watch like professionally made videos and I'm always awed. I'm like, this is so great, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I do what I can do, you know, with my little camera, with the autofocus. And sometimes it goes wrong and focuses on the, on the wrong thing or, you know, stuff like I forget to plug in the, the microphone cable or stupid things. And then I talk for like an hour and in the end, I haven't recorded stuff. And, and, and it can get really frustrating. But, um, yeah, um, you know, after, after doing this for a while, you, you kind of develop a work routine. And so, so I really do it all myself, also the music videos. I mean, every once in a while, you know, I need someone to hold the camera. My right. husband or my brother or my mother, usually. Um, but other than that, I, I do it all myself. You know, I, I write the songs, I record them, um, I, I do the mixing, um, I, I do the videos, I do the makeup, <laughs> the clothing, uh -huh. um, uh, the editing, um, everything, pretty much, yeah. Do you find that your days are, are structured where at the Institute, you don't have to teach as far as I know. So you pretty much do research. Do you, do you wake up at a, at a specific time and then you, 
go to bed at a specific time and you read papers from a certain time or is it is every day chaotic no i i'm very much a routine person you know my my days look kind of really yeah yeah but it's also it's not just me it's because you know i have two children uh who normally would go to school so right now of course the schools are all closed but you know, you just, you get this routine because you have to wake them up and get them to school and then they come back at a certain time and um, by then you have better done your, your job, right? What does your day look like then in terms of how much time you spend working and what do you specifically work on? Are you reading papers most of the time? Are you sitting with a pen looking at the wall? Like, I'm, I'm actually interested in the specifics. Well, so I should probably say that right now, everything is just different. You know, normally I would be at, at my institute. Uh, but now, of course, I've been working for, from home for three months uh, with the kids in the background. And a lot of stuff didn't really get done because, you know, there are just other things that keep getting in the way. I have to remind them to do their homework. I have to cook for them, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not it's not normal the way that it is right now but um normally um i mean so there there are many different aspects of um being a theoretical physicist as you already pointed out so i work at the research institute Uh, i don't have teaching duties Um, and that of course is also part of the reason why i'm active in public outreach is kind of filling in this educational part that Mm. um, i i don't have in my job so i kind of feel like a I need to give back something to society. Ah, ah, ah. Um, Because I know some professors, they love research and they dislike teaching. Now, some are the opposite. I think Feynman actually left the Institute because he's like, I got to teach. I can't, I have to be in the field. But many professors that I know, they don't particularly like teaching. It seems like you have a need to teach, a need to give back. Is that, you feel like that's missing and so that's why the YouTube videos come about? Well, um, well, it's kind of, it's, it's a very different audience. You know, the YouTube videos are not talking to students. Uh, they're not meant to prepare people for um, work uh, in, in a professional discipline. Um, they're more to generally communicate what are we actually doing. And personally, I find this more relevant um, I guess mostly it's because there are a lot of people who teach, but I think there are too few people who do science communication. And uh, so, so this is why it's, I, I, it's important to me and uh, I like doing it, even though I'm technically not getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I would not describe my outreach activities as actually being part of my job. You know, it's, it's something that I, I do on the side. For what my research is concerned, um, you know, it's indeed mostly reading. You know, it's a lot of it. uh, The biggest part is finding out and understanding what other people have done, including, you know, the stuff you go go to seminars, you give seminars yourself and and, and, uh, that whole game. And then, of course, you get to a point where you feel like you've read everything that was to read on a particular topic. Now, can I add my own thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you have to sit down and actually write down equations uh, and see uh, if there's a problem you can solve or is, if there's a new twist you can turn uh, on um, something. And um, 
so stuff like this. Then of course I also have a postdoc and I have a student um, who have their own projects that I have to look at and see that they <laughs> they get to where I think they should be getting. <laughs> Um, and you know there are other things like I um, organize workshops, conferences. I have to review papers. I have to review grant proposals. Um, have to write grant proposals. This actually sucks up a dramatic amount of time. Um, there's some administrative stuff that I have to do. Like if you're getting grants, there's always some overhead that comes with it that you have to, you know, you have to keep track of where the money goes and fill in so reports. How much, and it sounds like, that's, like that. that's there's so much extra on top of the actual research that how much of your time do you get to spend on research with you like you said sitting at your desk with your paper thinking how can you twist how can you add your own how can you contribute to a field how much of your time do you get to spend doing that let's say let's say per day an hour or two hours a half hour every week you know, I, I would have to think about this more deeply. So the, the problem is that um, the way that I work, I, I kind of, I work in phases. Like I'll have a phase where I pretty much only do research. Like I've been doing now, I've been working on the super determinism stuff. Like every day oh, for 10 cool. hours, basically. I wake up, it's on my mind, you know, there's this stuff. And then maybe I can do it this way and you, you know, you know, down an equation. Um, then you figure out, okay, I don't know this. I have to look this up. Uh, you know, then you try this and it doesn't work and you try something else and it goes like this the whole day until I go to bed. Then I wake up in the middle of the night with an idea <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, I have to write this down. Okay. So then I sleep some more hours and then I wake up again and I'm like, now I have to look this up. And it, and it may go like this for several weeks or maybe one, two months. And then at some point I'm like, I'm like either totally frustrated and stressed out and everything and just have to stop it. Uh, or something else comes up um, that just has to be done, um, you know, conference organization, what have you, B proposal deadline is approaching, uh, and then something else takes over. So then for some while, I'll be doing something else, and then I'll be getting back to research. So that makes it very difficult for me to answer the question in terms of hours per day. Um, you know, I, it, I guess it's something between 30 and 50%, roughly speaking. Uh, that I get oh, to actually plenty. work on. That's pretty much, yeah. I know that I, I'm in a very lucky position. Um, I know that a lot of um, my colleagues, especially those who work in teaching, you know, have, have a lot more duties um, that take time away from, from their research. Um, you know, on the downside, though, I have to say I don't have a permanent position. You know, I sit on a, I sit on a temporary contract that will run out in two years. <laughs> I was talking to Steven Pinker and I was asking him, well, how much of your time is spent actually writing versus researching? And I think he said it's 90 percent research. That is, in your case, it would be the equivalent of reading papers and then 10 percent writing for you. How much of how, what does that split look like? Well, between the between the reading and the writing, there's the calculation part, <laughs> right? Uh, so um, for me, the writing is kind of the, the least amount of effort. You know, it's what I do at the very end. If I have everything together, I'll sit down. Right, that's what I mean. Up. Sorry, I'm, I'm also including the calculation in the writing. So the reading oh, I, and then calculating and slash writing. 
so it, it depends on whether it's a field that I'm already familiar with. Um, like if, if it's a field like, for example, the superfluid dark matter stuff. Okay, I've, I've been following the literature on that for five years. So, so now the thing is, if something new comes out, I only have to read the new part. Yeah. So which reduces the amount of literature that I have to digest. Uh, so in, in a case like this, you know, it may be something like 50-50. But if it's, if it's a topic that I'm really new to, um, as it was the case up until recently uh, with the foundations of quantum mechanics, and there's just such a huge amount of literature that you first have to get in and digest that it shifts more to like, it's 95%. Uh, reading and then there's this little bit of extra that you may be able to add. I remember one of your videos and I'm paraphrasing so please let me know if I'm mischaracterizing you. I don't mean to. You said something along the lines of that's not you were referring to something and I wish I could remember but you said that's not a that's not something I'm interested in. That's not a, a question that can be answered with science so I'm not interested. Now you can tell me if I'm wrong there but I'm curious is all that matters what can be answered with science? Um, so I have no idea what I may have been referring that. Uh, I, I don't to know the, uh, It so sounds like a thing that, that, that I may have said in the context of the video, probably, you know, I was trying to discuss a scientific question and then I may have said something uh, to the extent, um, but I don't want to talk about this because it's not a question that science can answer. Um, mm -hmm. So, but this doesn't mean that science is the only thing that's interesting. Like we were already talking about creative outlets, right? And um, I, I don't uh, think that this is merely, you know, something that's unimportant. You know, I don't see myself as a professional artist and I, you know, I have no aspirations to become one. To me, it's kind of something that I need to function properly as a human, basically. But uh, I mean, there are professional artists and I think that they fulfill a very important function in our society, you know, by um, giving pleasure to people's life. You know, that's something that, that um, is really important. So, so science is, is definitely not the only thing that matters. Or maybe mm. I should add, you know, but also but to make people think, you know, art is not only about what is pretty, of course. Are there truths that are non-scientific? Um, yes, there are mathematical truths. Okay. Are there truths that are non-mathematical and non-scientific? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by truth. Uh, I would say no, because for me, a truth is an absolute truth, you know, something that is unshakable. Um, and um, you basically only find this in mathematics if you can actually prove something like two plus two equals four. So already when you come to science, um, the best you can do is say that something is almost certainly correct, you know, with, with a certain error bar <laughs> at, at the almost certainly. Uh, but colloquially, I guess most people would at some point just say it's true. You know, if the uncertainty is so small that uh, nothing's going to change about it almost certainly in their lifetime or something, they would just say it's true. Are there truths in fiction? So, for example, if you watch a movie that was made up by someone and you say there, there's, there's truth in that. I mean, I don't know. Would, is there truth in fiction? Well, again, I, I think that's something which people would say colloquially, but they wouldn't literally mean it's true. They, they would say it um, maybe to mean um, this captures something that I have also experienced or something like that. What's the difference in your eyes between physics and metaphysics? 
and just delineate it for the audience. Well, I think if my, if my Greek doesn't fail me, I think the word meta just means beyond. So the, the metaphysics or after or something like this. Like it's what, what comes after the physics. If you're done with the physics, then there's metaphysics. <laughs> um, but the way that uh, it's, it's been mostly used by philosophers um, is to say that in, in physics, you have certain assumptions that are not themselves empirically um, testable, but that physicists use nevertheless um, just because they have to. <laughs> Um, otherwise nothing works. You have to start with uh, something. Um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm using the word uh, in the same way um, that the philosophers uh, do. Like, I mean, for example, uh, um, a metaphysical assumption is um, the idea that um, um, theories have to um, fulfill a certain type of beauty. That's what my book is about, um, right? There are certain types of beauty that physicists have um, been using extensively. And, um, you know, I, I say that these are ideals of beauty, but what they actually are, are metaphysical criteria. It's just that, you know, if <laughs> it's, it's not particularly catchy to talk about metaphysical criteria. So, so that's not what I call it. I just say there appeals to beauty. I have a, a somewhat technical question. Weinstein, Eric Weinstein was talking about the Einstein field equations, Dirac equations, and then the Yang-Mills equations. And he said that they are provably the simplest in their class. And as far as I know, there's no theorem in the field of physics that says that they're provably the simplest. Is there? And do, like, what the heck, what does that mean that they're provably of their kind? Do you, ha um, you happen to know some well, so it's hard to say what, what he may have been referring to there. I mean, if you, because it depends on exactly which assumptions uh, you make. Like, let, let's take, for example, general relativity. You can just, um, general relativity is a simple theory in the sense that um, it takes only like five assumptions um, to derive it. Uh, and these five assumptions are kind of like uh, gravity is described by the curvature of space and time. Uh, it couples to the stress energy tensor, which is the conserved quantity. Uh, it reproduces Newtonian gravity uh, in a suitable limit. And uh, I think there are two more, which I've, which I've now forgotten. And then you can show that uh, general relativity is the simple theory that does that, where the word simple becomes relevant because you can, you can make the theory more complicated if you want to um, by adding higher order terms. I see, uh, I see. But, the, but then you just say, no, I take the simplest one. I see. And, uh, and I guess that um, it, with Young-Mills theory and the Dirac equation, it may be something um, similar. It, but again, it depends on exactly how you phrase the assumptions. Like if, for example, with the Dirac equation, um, Dirac made this um, assumption that the theory has to be linear, um, which um, is something that you may wonder if you can do it without. So the Dirac equation is basically you're trying to take the square root of um, Einstein's equation e, e squared minus p squared equals m squared. Um, and right. uh, so the peculiar thing about the Dirac equation is that you take the square root, but you get a linear equation. And the only way you can do that is by using these weird matrices. 
but in principle, you can take a square root of an operator. Um, that's something which exists, and you, you can define that uh, by using the spectral uh, decomposition. And I've no idea why, why Dirac didn't try that, or maybe he did and uh, you know, he didn't like it or whatever. People tried it later, there are papers about this. Um, and you know, then you, you can, I, I don't know how, is, is one of these solutions simpler than the other? I don't know, but one is wrong and the other one isn't. <laughs> like, I mean wrong in the sense that Dirac's equation actually describes reality, while if you do it the other way around, uh, you also get a theory that kind of solves the problem that Dirac posed. Like, if, how do I take the square root of that thing? Right, right, right. right. Um, but, but it doesn't describe what we observe, so. I see. This question doesn't make much sense, but it's fun to think about. Imagine you're a photon. How do you experience time? Now, I know time is defined as the length, the path length in space-time, but proper time is. So that means that the photon experiences zero time which is imagining you're the photon. It's, it's like you, you, you're immersed and then you die instantaneously. What does the experience of a photon look like? I have no idea. I don't know what it means to talk about the experience of a photon. Like we were talking about um, consciousness earlier. Uh, and I think that you can um, define um, experience in a similar way, but uh, it requires that you have a certain amount of particles that are able to actually exchange information. And so I would say a single photon just doesn't have any experiences. I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that answers your question. But yeah, I mean, the canonical answer to the question is that uh, photons um, don't, can't have a sense of time, basically, exactly because of this um, issue that, the, that you're pointing out. So the, the length of the curve on which the photon moves is zero. And uh, the length of this curve is usually what you mean by time. Sabine, what's next for you? And why don't you tell our audience where they can find out more about you? Your YouTube link will be included. Well, uh, so um, I'm lucky in that, for all I know, I'm the only person on this planet with the name Sabina Hossenfelder. So the only thing you have to do is enter my name in some search engine and you will find out more about me than you ever wanted to know, trust me. Um, so, so that's the easy part. Um, the complicated part is uh, what I'm going to do. So um, like the, the next uh, two years are pretty straightforward because um, I'm working on this research project uh, on superfluid dark matter. Uh, so that's what I'll be doing. I also have this running research project uh, on superdeterminism um, that we talked about. Um, and I am also, you know, I, I was in the process of organizing a workshop on that, um, which was supposed to take place in May, but then we had to cancel everything. I'm glad because when I wrote um, that question, I wasn't sure if you were familiar with the term superdeterminism. And it turns out you're a specialist in the field. Yeah, you know, it was lucky because as I keep joking, there are only three people on the planet who understand what superdeterminism is. So that's, uh, that's me and Gerard Tooft and Tim Farmer. <laughs> so uh, you're talking to exactly the right person. Um, yes, uh, and I'll, I'll keep on doing the YouTube thing for some more time, definitely. Um, I'm kind of getting into it. You know, the, the, the more practice you have, the easier it gets because you become more efficient um, with producing content if you don't make as many mistakes. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but beyond this, I really don't know because I'm, I'm sitting on this short-term contract and there's always the question like, uh, will I get another um, research grant? Or if not, then what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so your future in the next five years, if this was a job interview, what does your future look like? You're not clear in the next five years. You hopefully <laughs> yeah, want to right. be in the I, field of physics. I failed the, I failed the interview. <laughs> so what if someone gave you a million dollars and said, I want you to spend this and just make music videos or just pursue music? Would you say yes or no? Is it that much of a passion compared to physics? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to give up my research. Um, on the other hand, I could put it on pause for some time. Uh, so I guess it depends on how many the right videos. Incentives. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a matter of time period that um, he or she would expect me to spend away from research. It's not really amount, uh, about the amount of money. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Thank you so much, Sabine. Appreciate this. And have a great day. Everyone, go visit her channel. Check it out. Subscribe. Are you aware of any other logical approaches to, of any other logics that are used in the building of physical theories? So for example, most of physical theories are grounded in classical logic that is P or not P, and you can't have both, else you have principle of explosion. Well, that is the principle of explosion. Okay. Well, There's there, also there is consistent some, logics and intuitionist logics. Th there is something called quantum logic so people have tried to um i i never followed this in much detail but i heard like one two talks about it um yeah as you say that there are different um systems of logic um and people have tried to um use them to um explain the puzzling aspects of quantum theory as just being a different type of logic um, where statements don't have to be mutually exclusive, so no, so um, which is supposedly where you get um, all this stuff from that uh, you know a state can be both here and there because the, these options are not exclusive. So that's kind of the, the vague idea. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I heard about this first, I think, ten years ago, and not all that much seems to have come out of it. But yeah, I mean, this would be the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm curious if there are, from the popularizers of science, much like Neil deGrasse Tyson and so on, if there are myths that you feel like that they sell to the audience that, that is incorrect, that you wish they wouldn't. So for example, that the electron is both up and down at the same time, rather than that being just a method that we use mathematically to calculate what happened. That's just part of the wave function. It's not necessarily that the electron is both up and down. Do you happen to know of any other misconceptions that you want to dispel so I, I don't know I don't know about uh, Tyson or yeah, it on a particular you don't but have well, to name thing that, that uh, yeah there are a few of these that sometimes come up that <laughs> the problem is that uh, I have a hard time pulling them up now because I didn't think about it previously but one thing that would come to my mind uh, immediately is this idea that the observations on the bullet cluster uh, rule out modified gravity. Um, which is which is wrong, and I think everyone who works in the field knows that it's wrong. But it's such a simple and seemingly 
uh, intuitive explanation that that science communicators draw on it um, all the time. And I find it really, really misleading. And I think it's really bad for the field because a lot of people in physics who are not really familiar with the with the subject matter just believe it. And um, yes, so this is one example. Another example is that um, I, I often hear people say that um, special relativity um, cannot deal with accelerated observers, um, which is which is wrong. Um, you can perfectly well deal with accelerated observers uh, in special relativity. It's just that a, a lot of uh, you know popular science textbooks only talk about um, non-accelerated observers. The reason this um, annoys me is that um, if you believe that, you, you can't understand the equivalence principle because the equivalence principle says that um, acceleration in flat space, in special relativity, um, is locally equivalent uh, to um, gravity uh, in a curved space. So if you, if you can't deal with acceleration in special relativity, it makes no sense whatsoever. So the whole point about general relativity is that it uses special relativity and generalizes it. So, uh, so, so that's another one of these things. Another thing that um, more recently upsets me is that um, you have probably heard that um, there is a type of dark matter that is um, increasing in popularity right now, which is called the axion. Um, and the story that they always tell, if you read these um, popular science articles, is that the axion was proposed in the 1970s um, by Frank Burchek and Steven Weinberg independently um, as um, a solution to a particular problem in the standard model, which is called the strong CP problem. And that's true in that um, they proposed this particle in the 1970s, but what they don't tell you is that this particle was ruled out two years after it was proposed. It's just not compatible with observations. And the thing that they search for now is uh, a strongly modified version of this original idea, which is called the invisible axiom. And so the reason this annoys me that they leave this out is that uh, this is symptomatic to what is going on in the foundations of physics more generally, that after a model has been ruled out, um, physicists don't give up on it and say, okay, this didn't work. Instead, they will fiddle with the model uh, until it's compatible with data again, then it will do another experiment and it will rule it out again, and then they fiddle with the model again, and, and that's been going on for 40 years. So I feel that by leaving out this part of the history, people get a very wrong impression of uh, what people are actually looking for today. 